Well, that really says it all, doesn't it? Worthy is the Lamb. You know, you drive in here this morning and you look at creation, you look at the color, and that draws your heart to worship. But when you start thinking about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and what he did for us, that can bring us to a point of worship. Worthy is the Lamb. And I'm not charismatic, but I want to tell you, it was all I could do this morning to not lift my hand in the air and just as an expression, an extension of my heart to to just say, worthy is the Lamb. And you know, you can worship God sitting down, you can worship God standing up, you can worship God with hands raised, or you can worship God just in silence, just standing there and praying. And that's what I did for a moment this morning, just praying, just quietly thanking Him for dying for me. It's not about body posture. It's not about sitting or standing. It's about what's in here, our hearts. And it's not about whether it's a hymn or a chorus, because you can worship God singing a hymn, or you can worship God singing a chorus, or you can not worship God. You cannot worship God singing a hymn or a chorus. It's not even about musical style. It's about what's in our hearts. I want to just thank you this morning for letting me be your interim pastor. Elizabeth and I are enjoying our relationship with you so much, and as I said earlier, I've enjoyed the personal interviews. I'm going to enjoy getting to know many of you much more Uh, in the weeks ahead. But before I get started this morning, I want to just tell you that we have been greatly blessed, Elizabeth and I, in our lives. Now, have we had challenges? Absolutely. We've had more than our share of challenges. Have we had difficulties in life? Absolutely. We have had our difficulties in life, but we have been greatly blessed and two of those blessings are here in this, this, this building this morning, in this sanctuary. My oldest daughter and my oldest grandchild are with us this weekend. And we are just thrilled to have them here. And it just brings me great joy to have them sitting out here this morning as I get to share with you. Another great blessing, though, in my life, and I hope you'll ch- ha- take an opportunity to meet Heidi and Avery after this service, but another great blessing in my life occurred back in 1976, the bicentennial of our country. And I was attending Gordon-Conwell Seminary at that time, and it was my great privilege to do an internship in Bethesda, Maryland that summer with my wife. We've only been married a couple of years, about a year, I guess, just one year. I better, better get the math right. I'll get corrected after this service if I don't get it right. We've just been married one year. But I had an opportunity to intern in Fourth Presbyterian Church there in Bethesda, Maryland, with Dr. Richard C. Halverson. He was the senior pastor there at that time. Will you forgive me that I was in a Presbyterian church? Now, I know we're Baptist here today. Got a picture of him. He's coming up on the screen right now. He was bigger than life. 
just a delightful man, and he had this bass voice, and boy, could he worship God. And he would often, during the Sunday evening service, he would, would sing and lead the congregation in worship. And one of my favorite memories about that summer was Roy Rogers' roast beef sandwiches. Because we had him, I think it was every Tuesday or Wednesday, he'd bring all of the staff together. And he had this great, warm, infectious way. I can't do it like he did it. But he'd stand up there and he'd say, love you. And when he said, I love you, you knew he loved you. And he taught us a lot that summer. And one of the statements that he made in one of his letters was, God does not need our worship. God doesn't need us to be here this morning because God doesn't need our worship. But we need to worship God. We don't add anything to God by worshiping Him or detract from God by failing to worship Him. But we, and we don't increase His honor, His glory, His prestige when we adore Him. We don't subtract from His majesty when we ignore Him. God is God. And God will be God tomorrow, and God will be God this afternoon, regardless whether we worship Him or not. God is God whether we believe in Him or not, whether we serve Him or not. He is the eternally self-sufficient one. He needs nothing at all from us, and He needs no one at all. He didn't even have to create us. God does not need our worship, Dr. Halverson wrote, but we need to worship God. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I want to encourage you to step out and get the sermon notes today because I'm not going to get all the way through my notes this morning. There's too much to say on the subject of worship. I'm not going to possibly cover it all. But we were created, we were made to worship God. And that's why this is such an important subject, such an important topic this morning. So important that I would encourage you to even step out and get the Bible study questions, even if you're not in a small group. We've got a dozen or so out there on the table right before the little prayer log, and you can step out and get them today if you want to do some more Bible study on this subject. Now, several years ago, I preached a series of eight sermons on the subject of worship in my church back in Nebraska, a series of eight messages. How do you put eight messages into one sermon? Well, you don't do it, but that's going to be a good reason for the excuse of why we're going to go past noon today with this, this message, okay? So you'll forgive me, right? You understand that there's eight sermons in one here this morning, okay? You can't do it. I'm not going to say everything there is to say about worship this morning. It just can't be done, and it won't be done today. But hopefully we're going to touch on a few things. So turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Worship is like a tonic for your soul. It brings energy to our existence. 
It's essential for our spiritual health. And worship is not simply about music and songs. It's not something done on set occasions on certain days. It's an entire way of life. The words at the top of your bulletin this morning. We're not going to say everything about the subject. In fact, the context of this passage which we're looking at this morning is really corporate worship. When the body, the church family, gathers together and we worship God through song. But worshiping God through song, whether it's a chorus or whether it's a hymn, that's just one small sliver of this subject of worship. We're praising Him this morning, musical worship. But that's just a small sliver. That's just one segment of a 24-7 lifestyle. Worship should be a lifestyle. It should infect and it should touch every area, every attitude, every action in our lives. But the context today of these three verses is corporate worship. Notice that every command in this passage of Scripture, which Nate read for us, and again, it's just so good to have Nate and Julia back. How many of you wish that they weren't going back to Australia this next week? Could I see your hands? If you really don't want them to go, go back, raise up both hands. We'd like them to stay, wouldn't we? It's going to be hard to see you go back. And I appreciate your heart for worship. Every command in these three verses this morning is plural. That means that it's instruction for Nate and Julia at this college that they're at in Australia, Hillsong, where they're leading to learning to lead people in worship. But these thoughts are for every one of us, not just Nate and Julia, not just me, not just our elder board, but for everyone seated here this morning. These commands are in the plural. They're addressed to everyone who's a part of the church, the body of Christ, as they gather corporately to worship our Lord Jesus, who was crucified and died for us. Now, notice the first thought here in this passage of Scripture. He begins with this thought of the peace of Christ. And there are four simple thoughts in these three verses. The peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts. The word of Christ is to dwell in our lives. And then our lives are to be marked by gratitude and live for His glory. And so the four key words in these verses are the peace of Christ, the word peace, the Word of Christ, Word, gratitude or thanksgiving, and then living our lives for His glory. Now, let's talk about these just very quickly. Notice this first thought, the peace of Christ. This word is used 92 times in the New Testament, and it comes from a verb according to Strong's Concordance, which means to join or to join together. Now, it's used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. In the greetings of Paul at the beginning of his epistles, many times he would say, may grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ be to you. 
And often he would begin his, his letters with these words, grace and peace. And so when the word peace is used in this way, it, it really describes God's shalom, that word in the Old Testament which describes God's, God's tranquility, that, that well-being when His presence fills our lives. Now, the word is used in other ways in the New Testament. It's also used to describe emotional or spiritual peace the emotional, spiritual peace which God wants us to have if we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you remember in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives I give to you, but my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. He wants our hearts to be at peace. And so that's describing spiritual emotional peace, the kind of peace that He wants us to have in our lives if His presence is indwelling us. But most of the time, when this word peace is used in the New Testament, it's used to describe the peace between Christians, between brothers and sisters in Christ. It's used to describe relational peace. And it's describing not just the absence of conflict or hostility. It it doesn't mean, well, I don't hate you anymore. It really describes the presence of tranquility and reconciliation, the kind of peace that results when when we say, I forgive you, I love you, I respect you as my brother or sister in Christ. It describes that relational peace that God wants us to have uh, between one another. And so we've got a couple of verses coming up on the screen now. Uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 19, and 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, which use the word peace in this way. Peace between people. So then, the Bible says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. 1 Peter 3.11, he must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. And when we have this kind of peace in our relationships, it's because we have cared enough to invest and actually pursue peace in our relationship with our brother or sister, when that relationship is broken or shattered and, and it's not what it should be. We, we go out there and we, we do everything we can to, to restore the relationship. We pursue peace. That's what the Bible's talking about in this verse of Scripture. Now, notice verse 15 here in Colossians chapter 3. And notice how Paul uses the word here. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And now he's talking about the the unity of relationships that we should have as Christ followers, as, as God's people. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule. This is an interesting word. Do you know what this word rule literally means? It means to umpire or to referee. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire or the referee in your hearts. And whenever I read this verse of Scripture, I can't help but think of uh, an NBA basketball game or an NFL football game or a Major League Baseball game. 
If you've watched sports long enough during your lifetime, then you've watched conflict ha- happen on the, the, the arena of an athletic field, and all of a sudden this big Donnybrook breaks out, and here are all of these athletes out on the, on the football field or on the basketball court, and they're fighting with each other. And when they're fighting with each other and there's this free-for-all, what does the referee do? Well, he steps into the fray and he breaks it up and he restores order. He brings peace to the situation. That's this word. Let the peace of Christ umpire rule in your hearts. Let his peace be your referee so that you have peace with one another. As one body is the body of Christ. And so he's describing peace in our relationships here in this this passage of Scripture. Colossians 3, verse 15. Now look at verses 12 through 14 for just a moment. And notice what Paul talks about before he gets to verse 15. Beginning in verse 12 here in Colossians 3, he says... Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if you have a complaint against somebody, against another, forgive each other. Forgive each other. And what should our forgiveness be like? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, notice he doesn't say here, gosh, I wish you all would forgive each other. No, this is a command. He says, so you also must forgive. If you've experienced the Lord's forgiveness in your heart and life, then we're called on to forgive each other in the same way. And above all these, look at verse 14 now, and above all of these, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, you know what these verses tell me? They tell me that we can't have peace in our relationships unless we're practicing these attitudes in our lives. And this is like our spiritual clothing. Now, I'm loving the fall here in New York. Elizabeth and I went for a drive this last Monday, and I think we drove probably over 100 miles or close to 100 miles as we just toured the Catskills, looking at all of the leaves. And I'd say, honey, look at that. And she'd say, did you see that? But I'm being warned by many of you that winter is coming. (laughs) And you know what that means? That means we won't be driving 100 miles on on Monday when there's snow on the highways. And you know what you put on when it's it's wintertime? Yeah, you get dressed in in long underwear, and you get those boots on, and you put on on that heavy coat. And then what's the last thing you put on before you go out of the house in the morning? You put on a hat, don't you? Well, a, a Whatever it was, yeah, you put that on too. But you, you make sure that you, you, you make sure you wear a hat. You don't go out of, out of the house, at least at my age, with the amount of hair I got. You don't go out of the house on, on a winter cold day without a hat. Now look at verse 14 again. 
And above all these, he gives us all this, this long list of clothing that we should wear as believers. Make sure you put it on in the morning before you go out of the house. Make sure you're wearing a little kindness and humility and meekness and patience. But above everything, before you step out of the house, put on love. Put on love. Put on that top hat, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then we've got verse 15. And let the peace of Christ, let the peace of Christ be the umpire, the referee in your hearts as one body. You know know why this is so important? This is so important because you can't worship God. You can't worship God unless you're practicing the peace of God in your relationships with other people. Now, you can come into church on Sunday morning and you can pretend to worship. And you can go through the motions. And you can mouth a hymn or you can sing a chorus. But you can't worship in here. It's impossible. Just ask me. I've tried to do it. And if I'm at odds with my wife, if we're in in conflict with each other, I've got to make it right before I can really worship. You can't worship unless the peace of God is ruling in your heart and life. That's why he gives us this principle. Now, notice the second thought. He says, let the word of Christ. This is the second guiding principle now. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And this, this is an interesting phrase here in verse 16. The Word of Christ describes the teaching or the instruction which we find in this book or what you find in your pad this morning if you're scrolling with me. It's the Word of God. It's the instruction of the Lord Jesus. It's an instruction that Jesus gave us, and it's it's the instruction about Jesus, doctrine, teaching about the Lord Jesus. That's what he's talking about when he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And this is an image of letting the Word of God make its home in your life. Letting the Word of God have its way with us. I love what C.H. Spurgeon said many, many years ago when he said, I would rather lay my hand a soak in a dozen verses of the Bible all day than rinse my hand in several chapters. I really applaud people that have a goal of wanting to work through the Bible in one year. And so, in order to do it, you've got to read several chapters every day, and you've got to stay with it if you're going to get from January to December 31st and get through the entire book. I respect you. That's a good thing. I applaud you. But, you know, many times we're, we're in such a quest to get through the Word of God, we don't let the Word of God into us. And that's why I love C.H. Spurgeon's statement. I'd love to, I, I like to lay my hand to soak in just 12 verses 
all day long and let them get into me. Let the Word of God have its way in you. Make its home in your life. Meditate on it. Don't just rush through it. Let God's Word speak to you. Make its home in your life. I love coffee, and sometimes, especially during the winter, I love hot tea. And often in the evening, Elizabeth will come to me and say, Honey, would you like some hot tea? And I say, Well, yeah, I think I'd like some hot tea. And I've had good hot tea, and I've had bad, bad hot tea over the years. Many times, Elizabeth, if she's, if, she, if she's in a hurry, she'll put that tea bag in the, in the water, and she just leaves it there for about 30 seconds. And she brings it to me, and I want to I, I say to her, Honey, this isn't hot tea. It, it, it's hot tea. It's hot, but it, it's weak hot tea. I like it when she puts that tea bag in the, into the water and she lets it soak there. And it's, as, it's, as it's soaking there in that hot water, that tea just gets into the water and the water gets into the tea bag. And then you've got a, hot, a, 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 a cup of hot tea. Strong hot tea. There's nothing like it. That's a picture of what Paul's describing here. Let the Word of God, like a tea bag, sink into your soul. Let the Word dwell there. Let His Word, it's rich. Look at that word, that phrase. Let it dwell richly, abundantly. It's better than any cup of hot tea you'll ever drink. It's better than any cup of coffee that you'll ever have. Let the Word of God make its home in your life. Let His Word have its way in you and with you. And this is a present tense command which describes letting God's Word take up permanent resonance in your heart of life. Now, I want you to notice very quickly here that Paul goes on with a phrase, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In fact, he says, teaching and instructing and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and all wisdom. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, I think there's, there's a, two or three thoughts here. Number one, our lives should be shaped by the Word of God, and our praise and our worship should be in harmony with the Word of God. The songs which we sing and worship should be rooted in the Word of God. They should be in harmony with His Word. They should accurately represent what the Word of God teaches us about God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They should, should be doctrinally sound. But then I also want you to know that there's many expressions of that Word as we sing and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he talks about psalms, he talks about hymns, and he talks about spiritual songs. Now, what's he talking about there in this verse of Scripture? Well, this is very interesting. He's really giving us this medley of styles by which and through which we can worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there were psalms that were being sung at the time that he wrote this letter to the the believers in Colossae. Psalms from the Old Testament, which had probably been set to music in the first century A.D., which they sang in Greek churches. 
and they probably didn't sing those psalms from the Old Testament, which had been set to music, in the same way that they sang them in ancient Israel. But it was the Word of God set to music in the form of a psalm being sung to different music. And and interestingly enough, if you want to know where I'm getting my thoughts right now, if you've got a New International Version study Bible, or if you've got the ESV study Bible, many of these observations are made on pages 1,838 and page 1857 and page 2271 in the English Standard Version study Bible. So I would encourage you when you pick up the study notes this morning and you leave here and you go back, don't just take my word for this. Do your own Bible study. Get that study Bible out tomorrow morning. Get these notes and look up those pages and look at the commentary and look at what they're teaching us here. And so they had psalms from the Old Testament, which they sung. And then they had hymns, which were composed for worship. Psalms were mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. Hymns were songs of praise. And remember, Jesus sang a hymn in Matthew 26, 30, when he was leaving. Just before he was betrayed and crucified, they went out and they, they sung a hymn. And so what, what were these hymns? Well, they were probably songs of praise that expressed adoration to God for all that he was doing in their lives and all that he had done. And then there were spiritual songs. That's the third type of sing that's mentioned here, musical praise to the, to the Lord. And so these were new songs that were being given to the church at that time by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in harmony with the Word of God, but they were different than the ancient songs of Israel or the the, the hymns, a different expression of music that they used to praise God. Reminds me a little bit of uh, a YouTube video that I watched yesterday of Darlene Check, and she was recounting the the story behind that wonderful chorus, which we've sung so many times, Shout to the Lord. How many of you remember that, that chorus, that Hillsong song chorus? Wonderful, worshipful song. Do you know how that song came to be? She and her husband. In fact, I would encourage you to Google this. For those of you who are techies, go home today. Google the story behind Shout to the Lord. And you can hear her four-and-a-half-minute testimony. She and her husband were going through a very difficult time in their lives, and they had just hit rock bottom. They were just trashed, and they got this gigantic tax bill in the mail, and she was despondent. She didn't know how they were going to pay that thing, and so she stepped into the next room in her home and just sat down at her piano, and she just started to play. I think she opened up her Bible to Psalm 95, 96 and read Psalms 95 through 96. And repeatedly in those Psalms is the phrase, shout to the Lord. And so she just started singing. And within 20 minutes, this wonderful, worshipful chorus, shout to the Lord, was born. And she was embarrassed about it. And she didn't think it was much of a song. And finally, she got up the courage to take that song to her worship leader And she was so embarrassed about it. Can't remember for sure how it was, but she made them them turn their back to her 
as she played it for the first time. And she kept saying, I'm sorry, I hope this isn't, isn't I, I hope this, I know this isn't much of a song. And she was very apologetic about it. But when she finished, the worship leader turned around and he said, how long have you been sitting on this song? And the first time they ever did it was during an offering at Hillsong Church as an offertory. And as the worship team began to sing it, people just spontaneously started standing and worshiping God with this song. And as she puts it, it's like the Holy Spirit just took it and the rest is history. God's gift to the church, a new song. Well, they had songs like this in the first century A.D. And so they sang and worshiped God through a variety of music. Now, I want to say something about music and conflict, conflicting over musical style. We had conflict in our church over worship in Nebraska. We've had conflict over musical worship in this church here in New York. And guess what? My church in Nebraska, and it's not, it wasn't my church, it was the Lord Jesus Church. The church I served in Nebraska in this church is no different. These churches are no different than any other church in America. And guess what? The conflict which we experience in worship over the types of songs we would prefer to sing or want to sing, is no different than what's been going on for a long, long time. In fact, did you know that back in the 18th century, during, I believe it was the Second Great Awakening, if you read the story of Jonathan Edwards, and I've got the story up here with me this morning, I'm not going to read it to you, they had conflict over worship. Because one of the things that happened when the Second Great Awakening happened here in America, here on the East Coast, is they started singing new songs. And they started singing more than they normally sang. And it was an expression of revival. And people were having a great time. Our public praises, Jonathan Edwards wrote, were greatly enlivened. And God was served in our psalmody as the beauties of holiness were sung. But you know what? After a while, the hymns that they were singing, they began to conflict over because they weren't composed and written like the hymns, these newly written hymns that they began to sing, weren't written like the hymns that they had been singing in church before. And if you're interested in church history, you can go back and read about it. And some of the great hymns of the church that we sing today, some of those written by Isaac Watts, you remember his name, and we embrace those songs. You know, he, what he was almost strung up and lynched in England when he wrote those songs because he put those hymns to the music of bar songs, songs that were being sung to, in the bars of, of, of England. And the high church people didn't care for it. And I've seen his grave. And you know where he's buried? He's buried in Dissenter Seminary. Uh, pardon me, not seminary. I guess that's a place for the dead, too. <laughs> he's, bore, he, he's buried in Dissenter's Cemetery. Cemetery, let me get that right. Cemetery right outside of John Wesley's Chapel there in London. He was a dissenter. He was disdained 
with the songs that he wrote. And so there's been conflict over hymns and the style of hymns that's been going on for centuries. It's nothing new. And in this modern age that we're living in, there's a great variety of Christian music. It's more complex than it's ever been before. There are hymns and choruses, and there are worship hymns, and there are gospel hymns. There are different types of hymns. Some of you would prefer to sing Presbyterian hymns. The rest of us in here are Baptist. We'd rather sing gospel hymns. There are different styles of hymns. The hymns that Fanny Crosby wrote are very different than the hymns that Isaac Watts wrote. And so we've got hymns and different types of hymns. And then we've got choruses, and we've got old choruses, and we've got these melodic, meditative choruses, uh, reflective like we sang this morning, and then we've got upbeat, celebrative choruses. And we've got everything from, from gospel choruses to Christian rap, of all things. And now Scott Gardner's smiling because he went to this stuff here this last summer with our, our youth. And there was Christian rap at that, wasn't there? Absolutely, man. Now, let me tell you something. I hate Christian rap. <laughs> I don't care for it. But my son loves it. And I don't get it. And there's a guy named Lecrae. <laughs> Go ahead, you can slide. I kind of, I kind of, I do like him. I, that guy is a soldier for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know somebody that loves McCray? You're never going to believe this. Is uh, Who's the, the reformed pastor, uh, John, uh, what's the guy that's really famous? I've forgotten his name. Well, God forgive me, I forgot his name. Not John MacArthur. Pardon me? John who? Uh, we're never going to get out of it. Forget it. Anyway, there's, just take my word for it. There's a pastor that loves this guy, okay? <laughs> no, I, that's not him. But anyway, the bottom line is, we have music, we have a different taste in music. We have different preferences, right? But there are a lot of people that worship our Lord Jesus Christ to Christian rap. Now, I don't get it, but, they, but they're having fun. And they're worshiping him from their hearts. So music is even more complex today than it's ever been. And so we need to be more patient today and more tolerant with each other than we've ever been because it's extremely diverse and Romans 15.3 says that we should, should see music, I believe, as an opportunity to please our brother and sister. Because guess what? I can promise you, you're not going to get all of your favorite songs here on Sunday morning every Sunday. In fact, there may be some Sundays that you'll walk in here and we won't sing any songs that are your favorites. But one of the things that I'm learning is that when we sing a chorus or a song, and you want to know, I'm going to offend somebody right now, and I'm going off script, and this is dangerous to do, but you know a hymn that I really don't care for? And, the, uh, and when I told people this, they just would, I don't like the hymn in the garden. Now, will you please forgive me for that? <laughs> but I just, 
I don't happen to care for it. And I know, as I've just said that, that I probably offended some of you because for some of you, that's your favorite hymn. Maybe one of the reasons for that for me is because we do, we, we've, I've done so many funerals. I, I'm not sure why. I love And Can It Be, and, and I love what a friend we have in Jesus and all this other stuff. But there's some hymns I like, some I don't. Same with you. And so we've got to be patient with one another. Because you're not going to get your favorites. And when you don't get your favorite, it's an opportunity to serve your brother or sister. Because you know what? You may not be singing a song that you like, but you can look across the aisle and there's this this smile on somebody else's face because they are singing a song that helps them connect with God in a worshipful way. And so if we're not singing some of the songs that we like on a particular occasion, we can choose to focus on the words. Because worship isn't just singing. You can think about the words. And I can, I find, I'm finding lots of opportunity now today to think about the words and to, and to meditate on the words that other people may be singing. And I can focus on that thought and pray it back to the Lord in worship. There are lots of ways we can do this. And so the Word of God gives us some guidance here, even for our musical worship. And then uh, to wrap this up very quickly, and you'll have to get the notes, and, or we'll have to continue this sermon another time. Notice our worship is to mar- be marked by gratitude, and it's to be done for the glory of God. And may I just say, you cannot worship God out of a bitter heart. You've got to have gratitude or thanksgiving. Notice that three times the theme of thanksgiving is repeated in these three verses. And give thanks. Look at the end of verse 15. With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving to God there in the last verse of Scripture. Gratitude has to be there in our lives for us to not just go through the motions, but be authentically, genuinely worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ from our hearts. Spirit and truth from our hearts according to the Word of God. And then it's to all be done for His glory. Because worship is a 24-7 proposition. Don't know where I got this. I was digging through my worship file this last week, and and this is really out of the archives. But I, I got this thing from one of my doctor of ministry classes, I guess back at Dallas Seminary in the early 90s, and uh, we were talking about worship. And, but I, I think it really is a beautiful picture, I wish you could see it, of what God wants our musical worship on Sunday morning to be. And it's got down here at the bottom biblical teaching, leadership, you know, children's choir, high school and junior high, you know, you've seen those handbell choirs. It's, it's got all of this stuff, the adult choir praise team, and it's got it going up like this toward the Lord. And then it's got this statement. Music ministry should erupt into explosive congregational worship that brings tremendous glory to God. That's verse 17. Everything that we do to His glory everything that we say and sing. Okay, as Nate and Julie are coming now, we're going to close with a hymn this morning. And this is a, another just interesting story. Great is thy faithfulness, 
this great hymn that we sing so often. You know, it was written by Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. You know how old he was when he died? He died at the age of 94. Mr. Coffee is 95. And we're hoping that the Lord's going to keep him here till he's 110. Thomas Chisholm was born in a log cabin. And even though he lived to be 94 years of age, he was very frail for most of his life. He experienced ill health, and he went through great difficulty. But he wrote 1,200 poems, and he corresponded with a friend of his by by the name of um, William Runyon. And one of the poems he wrote was, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And he sent the words to William Runyon, and William Runyon put it to music. And it's now the hymn that we have and that we're going to close with this morning, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Do you know that Great is Thy Faithfulness was not a very popular hymn for a long time until, until there was a chaplain at Moody Bible Institute who fell in love with this hymn. And he liked it so much that he had him sing it at chapel every chapel service. And it became well-known, and George Beverly Shea became aware of it, and he started singing it at the Billy Graham Crusades. And now you know the rest of the story. God gave us the gift of this wonderful song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Let's stand and sing it now together as we worship the Lord this morning.